Praise God. I am excited. Um, I just love what God is doing in our city. And uh, man, what an awesome um, time. I led a prayer time on Friday night, and it was hard, and it was dry. And I'm like, oh, Lord, why is prayer sometimes so hard? Why don't you help us? Um, but uh, I went to one last night, and it was great. And at first I thought, Lord, why wasn't my prayer time this good? And <laughs> because Autumn Man led it last night for part of it, and then Heather did, and they're way better prayers than me. And so um, they led us in a great time of prayer. But thank you for those that popped in and out as you could and as your schedule allowed. And uh, every one of those prayers, God's already set to answering. And uh, I'm excited for what's happening. So Today we're going to continue in our series called Thriving in Babylon, and as I told you, next week is the last week if you want to purchase one of the books uh, that are in the back on the Welcome Center. Uh, the Daniel Dilemma talks about how to stand firm and love well. Maybe bring my mic down just a little bit because um, I'm talking soft right now, and I know as I go, I'll get a little more excited. And um, it's about how to stand firm and love well how to, to proclaim truth and yet love people at the same time. In the body of Christ, I hate the fact that all of us are guilty of this, um, that we tend toward extremes. You know, we, we focus, it's not that our theology sometimes is wrong, it's just that it's, we focus on one attribute of God um, and tend to minimize another attribute. And so what churches tend to do is they tend to be truth churches. We're proclaiming truth. People in America need to hear the truth. They need the truth. They need the truth. Um, and then the other extreme is people just need grace. They just need grace. They need you to love them. God is love. God loves you. Well, he's full of grace and truth. That's how Jesus came. And we're supposed to speak the truth in love. And to find that tension and that balance, I believe Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego exemplify that. And that's what the Daniel dilemma is all about. And uh, Thriving in Babylon focuses on the hope of Daniel, the humility of Daniel, the wisdom of Daniel. Some of it we're going to cover in services, but some of it um, we're going in different directions. And those are supplements to it. So if you want a copy, they're there. Um, after next Sunday, we're sending them back, the ones that we haven't sold yet. So uh, please stop by and pick one up. Last week, when we started, I preached a sermon called Knowing Our God. And my plan was to go into this week knowing our identity, um, but I feel like we're, we need to talk about knowing our God more. <laughs> and um, we're going to go into knowing our identity next week and our identity in Christ and who we are. And maybe today we're actually going to start talking about our identity and reminding us who we are not. I think of the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes, you are God in heaven and here I am on earth. And so I think of the song by Phillips Craig and Dean, so I let my words be few. Um, sometimes, especially as Americans, we, we tend to try to look at the scripture through our cultural lens instead of through the complete lens of the Old Testament, New Testament. There's a movement right now in the church culture to, to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Um, you can't fully know what the New Testament means apart from the Old Testament. And so, you know, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came as a fulfillment of the law. Okay, so you got to understand the law is finished. There's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus, but the law isn't done away with. And you actually get a better understanding of the righteousness we have in Christ and our identity by understanding the Old Testament. And so today we're actually going to talk a little bit about that and what it means to be humble, to depend upon God, 
Proverbs 3, verse 5, we hang it on our wall in our houses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. But we as Americans tend to want to trust in the Lord and have understanding. And uh, sometimes we don't get both and we need to learn to trust God. And I think that's what Daniel does. And it's, it's not enough to just have correct theology. We actually have to put it into practice. Um, I don't think most of our problem, most, there's some, um, in our American culture today is our theology. It's that we're not living out our theology. Let that sink in for just a second. Um, let me say it this way. I, I mean, I, I even already said it. We think of God help us to be righteous. We think of big sins, but we totally dismiss complaining and grumbling. And we think we're totally legitimately... Um, right in being grumbling against our government leaders, grumbling. Now, there's a right way to handle things, and I love the fact that we live in a culture where I can pick up the phone, and I can call the office of my senator or my congressman, and I can tell them my thoughts on issues, Um, but I don't have to grumble and complain about it. In fact, if I'm going to pray for our nation and then grumble and complain about my leaders, (laughs) it's like I pray, I grumble, I pray. It's like we're on this seesaw. And I feel like Daniel and his friends, and I keep calling them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even last week, though I told you that their, their real names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but like every one of you that was raised in Sunday school, I wasn't taught those names, so I'm trying to relearn them, so I actually use them. It's interesting that Daniel refers to himself as Daniel throughout his writings, but um, later on, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, Abednego are referred to by their, their Babylonian names, but there's a... a this idea of putting our theology into practice, um, A.W. Tozer, I don't know if you know A.W. Tozer, he's a, he died in 1963, so put that in context, but one of his quotes, listen to this, if the Holy Spirit was removed from today's church, so 1960s, 95% of what we do would continue unchanged. We sometimes get locked into things as Americans and we put our culture into the scripture instead of letting the scripture shape our culture. Um, and we don't have to change American culture. We just have to live in the greater reality of the kingdom even within this culture. We're working so hard to get sinners to change their minds on things that they can't possibly change their minds on until they come to faith in Christ. And so we need to start just living in the reality of the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, bring people into the kingdom, and then the culture will take care of itself. Does that make sense? And so it's not that I'm opposed to political means or processes. Uh, I just feel like they're futile because we're trying to convince unregenerate people who don't have the mind of Christ to use the mind of Christ. And so that's what most of this series is all about. And we're, we're guilty of it in the church as well because... Most of what we do in the church, uh, we rely on ourselves. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, eh, we'll just, you know, fake it till we, we get there. And uh, I'm all for living by faith, but living by faith, we need the presence of God in our lives. And if I'm prayerless and there's no presence of God, I don't have faith. Because if I had faith in God, I would actually pray. Because faith without corresponding action is not faith at all. It's dead. And so that's kind of what we're, we're looking at and we're trying to address in, in our lives over this series. And I, I put on the screen, 
you know, if you want to take a picture of it, if you want to write it down, um, we're going to kind of go quick because I covered this last week. But I want you to understand the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 are these four men, teenagers really, being um, taken into Babylon as captives, and they're coming to political power. They resolve not to defile themselves. Their goal in going into Babylon is not to change the culture of Babylon. It's to not defile themselves by the culture of Babylon. Now, some of the things they had to do, they had to sit in on the teachings and the instructions. Um, they, there were parts that they did, because some of us today think, you know, we, we can't send our children to the public school. You can but you, you need to be intentional if you are because the, the public school system is not meant, uh, the educational system is not founded upon the word of God. One of the reasons I love Christian education is not because we separate ourselves from the world in Christian education. In fact, I believe we shouldn't separate ourselves from the world in that sense, but it's based on who God is. It's based on the creator. I mean, how can you have knowledge apart from the creator? So I love Christian education, but I love our, our Christian teachers and our Christian students that attend the public school system. And I want them to be light and, and salt where they are so that others can hear the, the gospel and be changed too. So Daniel chapter 1 introduces them to us. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he sees the statue and nobody but Daniel is able to interpret it. Interestingly, the king wants to kill all of the magicians, the wise men, because they can't interpret his dream. And Daniel circulates a petition among all of the wise men um, appealing to someone to change the... No, he doesn't do that. Um, he actually just calls on God and says, God, if you don't give me the interpretation, I'm dead. I almost feel like we would pray better if you know, edicts like that were passed in America, but uh, I don't want to get there. I want us to do it willingly. But the king, or Daniel gets the interpretation. He gives it to the king. And later on in Daniel 7 through 12, all of Daniel's dreams and visions that he gets throughout his lifetime in Babylon are given to us there in chapter 7 through 12. And it's not that part is not historic, or that part is not chronological at that point. And so you have to kind of pay attention to who's king at the time, but all of his dreams and visions are kind of rooted in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has this great idea to build this idol and everyone has to bow down to it. And if you don't bow down to it, you're going to go into the fiery furnace. Well, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refuse to bow down. But uh, I want you to be reading the book of Daniel because I want you to pay attention to the, the honor and the respect that they use when they defy the king's order. Okay, they're not rude. They're not... Uh, uh, mean, spirited, and uh, we need to make sure that that's how we live out our lives as well. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, but this dream is a call to repent for him personally. It's that his heart is lifted up with pride, and if he doesn't repent, um, God's going to judge him in a certain way. And Daniel actually um, wishes that this was about someone else, not this king. And you've got to understand, this is an ungodly king that Daniel is wishing that this wasn't about him. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent, so he lives like a madman, but eventually he does repent, and he's restored to his kingdom. In chapter 5, we're introduced to Belshazzar. Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son, and all of a sudden, this human hand appears while he's throwing a party uh, out of nowhere and writes on the wall. Again, none of the wise men can interpret it. Somehow, Daniel has been pushed to the side uh, under Belshazzar, but the queen 
How many of you know the Bible says if you have a, if you find a good wife, or if you find a, a wife that is noble, you find a good thing. Amen. I praise God I have a good thing. And uh, Belshazzar did too because the queen's like, I remember this guy named Daniel. Daniel comes, he can read it. The king promotes him to third in command, which is great, except he doesn't repent, so he dies that night. And then Darius the Mede comes in and sets up the kingdom. And under the third king, second kingdom, Daniel, the Bible says Daniel is so set apart above all of the other wise men that Darius wants to put him in charge of all the kingdom. But the other wise men don't like that, so they trap Daniel in this plan, and uh, he gets thrown into the lion's den. He's probably about 70, 80 years old when he gets thrown into the lion's den, but the lions don't eat him. And just in case you thought the lions weren't hungry, the moment Daniel is taken out and the wise men who trapped him are thrown in, the lions devour them before they even hit the ground. Okay, so we don't want God to devour our enemies, but if our enemies don't repent, God promises to devour our enemies. And so that's not our hope. Um, We do hope that all people repent, but that's kind of what happens there. And then in chapter 9, that one specifically is Daniel's prayer of repentance, and we'll talk about that um, as we we go through the the day today. And I want to take time to cover the context of the life of Daniel. And we're going to go back to the book of Jeremiah and the book of Habakkuk today. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 is what we're going to read from. And I put it on the screen um, for you to be able to read along or you can open it and find it in your device or your Bible there. But um, I, I feel like we need to understand the context of how this happens. Because when we read, and we talked about this last week, when we read Daniel, sometimes we just Uh, mistakenly assume that if we obey God, everything just works out for us. And God just always delivers us. But we looked at Hebrews 11 last week where some people got eaten by lions. Some people were sodden too. So sometimes it didn't work out for people. And we, we talked about how in our American culture, we tend to make faith a personal thing. And it is a personal thing in the fact that you have to accept Christ personally. But there is no, if there was only one, if there was only you, Jesus would have died for you. You know, that's a great saying and it makes us feel good. Um, but there isn't only us and Jesus died for all. And he brings us into a kingdom. He brings us into a body. And in fact, Romans chapter 8, where God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose, that's actually plural. And so sometimes when we're like, we go through this tragedy and we're like, God, uh, this isn't good. How's the, uh, I just trust that you're bringing good. But it doesn't necessarily mean he's bringing your individual good. He's bringing kingdom good. And sometimes kingdom good means he delivers me out of the fire. Sometimes kingdom good means he walks with me through the fire. And I know it's not fair that, you know, why did that person get delivered and I have to go through the fire? I don't know. I don't even want to claim to know the ways of God. His ways are far beyond finding out. But I do know that he is faithful. And I think our problem in the American culture is we tend to not study the Bible. We tend to cherry pick the Bible. Do you know what the word cherry pick means? To cherry pick means that you take only the beneficial parts. 
And we all tend to do this with our theology. We, you know, show the things that help our theology look good, and then the things that don't, we tend to dismiss and push away. But we as Americans tend to cherry pick stuff, and we don't understand the whole context of what Daniel has gone through. And I think if we do understand the context of what Daniel goes through, I think we would understand how to have the same type of hope and dependency and humility and wisdom and compassion that he had also. I believe the current state of the American church reveals a lack of the knowledge of God. The way we react and respond to what's happening around us. And so that's why I want to talk about knowing God more. We're going to go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesies 20 years before Babylon takes over, about 20 years. So he's talking about what's going to happen to the nation of Israel before it happens. And then he writes lamentations that we read from earlier that while it's actually happening okay so he prophesies it's going to happen but when it happens this guy weeps he is not happy to see that his prophecy has been fulfilled which is odd because he's the only prophet in Judah at the time that's prophesying truth everyone else is lying we're going to read that here in Jeremiah 29 so here's the words of Jeremiah that Daniel actually reads in Daniel chapter 9 before he prays This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon before it happens. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. That's important because that's the opposite of what they've been called to do. They've been called to to be a completely set-apart people. And so the temptation in their minds is to go into Babylon and try to remain that way. But what he's trying to teach them is how to be in the world but not of the world. Okay, right here in the Old Testament, that's what he's calling them to do. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Now, that's been a key verse for us as a church, but if you notice on the back of our shirts, we kind of left off the into exile part because when people read that, we don't want them to feel like, you know, Huron is exile for us. Um, But if God wanted his people to seek the peace and prosperity of the city where they were in exile... How much more do you think he would want us to seek the peace and prosperity of the city where we're not in exile? I mean, this is what it is to be in the world and not of it. But I think the church, we need to be careful that we don't go to the one extreme or the other, that we understand how to live this out the way the people of God were supposed to live it out in Babylon. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. So just because somebody cherry picks a scripture and says, hey, this is what the church is called to do. We're called to be this extreme. Make sure that the cherry picked scripture fits in the whole scripture. Okay? Otherwise, you might find yourself actually fighting against the Lord God Almighty. And that's, we're, I'm going to show you that in the last days, these times are coming, just like have been prophesied right here. Then he goes on, this is so 
familiar to us if you have any type of um, Bible understanding or you ever got a graduation card. Now, this is, you'll know this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. When Daniel read that, he set his heart to pray and, and, and called on the Lord to fulfill his promise. He didn't just go, yay, hallelujah, 70 years is almost up. He actually began to pray that God's word would come to pass. So why do we pray for God's word to come to pass? Because just because God declared it, he wants to partner with you and I to declare it on the earth. Great. Thanks, Marv. Thanks for praying with me, man. <laughs> I know that some of you amen quieter, and that's great. So don't be offended if I didn't call you out. Um, for I know the plans I have for you. Plural. That word is plural, okay? It's not about the plans God has just for us individually. Yes, he has individual plans for us, but those individual plans are to be part of a corporate plan that he has on the earth. And not just corporate in this little body, and that's it. Corporate in our city, corporate in our state, corporate in our nation, corporate around the world. God is moving around the world, and we are called to be a part of what he's doing. He has plans to prosper and not to harm, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place where I carried you into exile. Now, Jeremiah prophesies this, and we see that it comes to pass later on, but now I want to look at Habakkuk, and if you want to turn over to the book of Habakkuk chapter 3, I've got it on the screen too, if you don't have a Bible, he's really small, so you've got to look for him, but Habakkuk prophesies at the same time about as Jeremiah does, but Habakkuk is complaining, he's complaining to God, and he's prophesying to the Jews that have remained faithful during this time. And he's like, God, why are you letting wickedness run rampant in your people? I mean, he's, he, in chapter 1, he's complaining about it. And the Lord answers him, and he says, Habakkuk, you're not going to like this. If you have a hard time with what you think I'm letting happen, you're really not going to like what comes next. That's what the Lord says in chapter 1. He says, I'm going to raise up the ruthless, impetuous Babylonians to take my people into exile. And Habakkuk then, again, in chapter two, questions God. It's, it's his complaint. How can you use a, a nation more wicked than us to judge us? He's like, I don't get this. God answers him again that he is going to judge Babylon ultimately. Okay, that, that time is coming. And he's, but he's telling Habakkuk, don't question me. Trust me. And then I love what Habakkuk writes in chapter 3. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then the end of the chapter, though the fig tree does not bud, and there, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful 
in God my Savior. Ultimately, he's saying, even though we're in economic ruin, even though we're about to go into captivity, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. The king is not my strength. The, the economy is not my strength. The political power is not my strength. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And this is why it's so important for us to understand the context of what Daniel is facing. Because otherwise, you and I are going to be tempted to think something strange is happening to us when we're mistreated, when we're going through a, a, a battle and things aren't working out the way we expected. It's like we expect everything's just going to go perfect. And that's why we complain and grumble at work. And that's why we complain and grumble about our political system and our world's going to hell in a handbasket because we don't understand there is a God that sovereignly rolls over this earth, always has, always will. And he is working out his plans and he is the one that makes our feet firm and enables us to walk. He enables us even in the midst of a pagan nation to resolve not to defile ourselves. Interestingly, when Jesus prayed for his disciples, he prayed, my prayer to God is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He is not praying that they would never have problems because he already told them, you're going to have problems especially if you want to follow me. Okay, the world is going to hate you. And now he's saying, God, protect them from the evil one. Protect them from the deception, the flattery that is coming on the earth. Last week, we were, Daniel chapter 11, he will seduce, the enemy of God will seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, those who turn back from the covenant that they've made with God. But the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. So Jesus says, don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them. Set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I sent them into the world. We are in the world, not of the world. We are set apart from the world, sanctified by the word of God, living according to the word of God, all of the word of God, not the cherry-picked parts of the word of God, all of the word of God. In Romans chapter 12, in view of God's mercy, Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means every decision I make now is not my own, it's yours. Everything that happens in my life, I'm totally yours, God. Whether, whether you deliver me from the fire or through the fire, I am yours. I'm a living sacrifice. Sacrifices don't complain while they're in the fire. Although, I'm, I tell you, it's hard, okay? I'm not, I'm not telling you that this is easy. You follow God and he'll just, you have got to recall to mind. Your soul is going to be downcast. You need to recall to mind what is true. Because it's going to look like the world is winning. It's going to look like the world is going to hell in a handbasket. It ain't. God has a plan. Now, some people are going to reject him and they will be punished. But let's not assume it's our enemy. Love our enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. 
do not conform, back to Romans 12, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you're able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, perfect will. Conform to the pattern of this world, again, is not just the main sins. We are looking to a political system to bring us breakthrough in our nation. The church, by and large, is appealing to the institutions of man to bring freedom on the earth. When we need to be appealing to God to bring freedom on the earth, and then the institutions of man will fall in line. Again, not opposed to people that want to be in politics, love politics, really can't get involved in it too deep because um, I tend to rely on it more than I rely upon God. So in the same way that Daniel refused to devile himself, we are called to live that same way today. I promised that I would show you it's coming in the last days, so here it is, Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus prophesies through the whole chapter that there's going to be this deception, there's going to be hard times that comes, and this verse, these two verses, in the middle of the chapter, because of the increase of wickedness, and all of us would be like, oh, amen, there's an increase of wickedness. Unfortunately, he's not talking about the world. And we know that because he says, the love of most will grow cold. And the word for love is the Greek word agape. We have talked about the Greek word agape in our church many times. That is the love of God that comes into the heart of a believer when you put faith in Christ. No one apart from Christ can have agape. So agape cannot grow cold unless you put faith in Christ. So the increase of wickedness is not out there. It's in here. And because of that, the love, the agape of people is going to grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Sort of like Daniel 11.32, isn't it? He will seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, act wickedly. But the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. I hope you're getting some. I, I mean, I'm excited about this message. And I'm excited about Daniel. I've been excited about it for a long time. But I want to give you, before we close, and don't panic, because I want to give you four points, just so I don't have a pointless sermon. I joked with our prayer team today and said, maybe the only reason I have points is so it, it's not pointless. But I want you to write these down. How do, we, how do we make sure we know God? Okay? And I'm going to give them to you quick. And I'm going to give you some scripture references, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to go home for the day. How's that? Sound good? Okay. Here's the first one. Get in the Bible. A casual reading of the Bible is not enough. Get in the Bible. Casual reading is good. You have got to study to show yourself approved. You've got to come to Bible studies. You've got to come on Sunday morning. My job on Sunday morning, sorry, my job on Sunday morning is to help teach you the word in context so you know it. But if this is all you get, you're in trouble. Okay? I'm going to tell you now. You have got to get into the Bible for yourself. If you've got questions, I've got a phone. I've got email. I've got texts. I'd love to respond to you. I'd love to sit down over coffee and try to explain. I don't have all the answers, but I've got some answers. Maybe you'll give me some answers. But we have got to study the word. Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified by truth. Your word is 
truth. How are we going to be set apart if we don't get in the word? The word of God is living and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It cuts between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. It helps renew our minds. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong, to correct us, and to help us, and to do what is right. Get in the Bible. Point one. Pretty simple, right? Point two is not much harder. Okay, it is. Do what the Bible says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Satan, our adversary, does not care if you read the Bible. If you don't put it into practice. Because you actually are worse off than people who don't even read the Bible at all. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus talks to the church in Laodicea. You are lukewarm. I would rather you be hot or cold. But because you read the Bible, but don't do what it says, you actually believe you're my people. In Isaiah 58, he challenges his people and says, you say, God, we call out to you, but you don't hear us. He says, because you call out to me and then you do whatever you want. You mistreat your workers. You mistreat other people. You think I'm going to hear that kind of fasting? That's not what I want. I want you to loose the chains of injustice. I want you to serve the poor. I want you to help people. The evangelical church has looked down on mainline denominations for years for this social gospel. But the problem is we've totally turned our backs on the poor. And they've been reaching out to the poor. And just because we think that they're wrong theologically, we're wrong practically. There's a coming together that's going to happen in the last days where mainline churches that we want to write off are going to come together with evangelical churches. By the way, it's already happening. And they're going to come together and God's glory is going to be revealed. Why? Because he promised it. In John chapter 17, he said, when the world sees your love for one another, when they see the unity that you have with one another, they're going to know that Jesus is the son of God. Isn't that awesome? All of us in this room could point to places where we obey the Bible. The thing we need to start asking is where are we resisting the Bible? Because the Holy Spirit will always bring us to our greatest point of resistance. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul warns Timothy, be careful. There are going to be difficult times in the last days. People in the body of Christ will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful. They will be proud. They will scoff at God, disobedient to parents, ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving, unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends. They will be reckless. They will be puffed up with pride. They will love pleasure rather than love of God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. All right, number three. Be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.8, be continuously filled with the Spirit. For those of you that are in this room that have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and you don't regularly pray in your prayer language, I challenge you, be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. 
If you're not operating fluently in all the gifts of the Spirit, I challenge you, be continuously filled with the Spirit. If you were raised in Pentecost and during ministry moments, if you're not operating in the gifts to show people in this room who haven't been raised in Pentecost how to do it, I would say shame on you, but God doesn't use shame. So we're not going to say shame on you. I'm going to use what the Word says. Stir it up. Stir it up within your hearts. You can choose to come in this room and be grumpy, or you can choose to come in this room and stir up the gift inside of you. You can choose to come in this room and be a spectator, or you can choose to come in this room and be a part. It's a choice. And it's time for us to take the choice. Because people out there need the presence and power of God in their lives. They are looking for the supernatural. God gave it to us. We're afraid to operate in it. Be afraid no longer. You, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. How do you keep yourselves in the love of God? Pray in the Holy Spirit. You want to build up your faith? Pray in the Spirit. At the end of the service today, if you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit and you say, I think I want to do that, our prayer team will be here in the front. They'll explain it to you. They'll talk to you about it. They'll pray for you to help, help you receive the baptism. We need to be filled with the Spirit. You've been filled in the Spirit, but you've kind of let that wane. You can come and you can just pray, God, I need, a, I need to stir up the gift. The last one, number four, pray. Aren't these points like, I mean, I am way underpaid as a pastor because I am giving you gold today. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. First Peter 4, 7. The, <laughs> the end of all things is near. I almost made it a whole sermon. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And isn't it funny that the thing we do least as a church is pray together? I wonder if we would be better off on Sunday morning when the most of us come having a prayer meeting rather than what we do. I wonder if more would get accomplished. Maybe, just maybe, we'll at least do one every quarter on fifth Sundays. I'll warn you, I wouldn't stay home on fifth Sundays, but maybe we need to do this more. Jesus told his disciples a parable in Luke 18 so that they should always pray and not give up. So there it is. Get in the word, do what it says, be filled with the spirit and pray. It's so simple and yet so difficult, isn't it? You know, when, I hope when we talk about Awaken the Dawn and the prayer time and when we talk about House of Prayer, it's not my goal to make anybody feel guilty because God doesn't operate in shame and guilt and I'm totally aware that there are things in your lives and in things in my lives that sometimes keep us, you know, when I have to miss a house of prayer because one of my kids is involved in an activity somewhere, I go. And there's no shame, there's no guilt, but I'm here every time I can be, okay? And I, I told our staff when we started it, I said, you're not required to come. Can we make our staff come to Sunday morning? I mean, they have to be here, we pay them, they're here. Like it or not, here you are. Um, but house of prayer, I don't make it that you have to come. 
Because I want, I want you to come, and I recognize that we don't have a culture where Tuesday night is sacred the way Sunday morning is. Uh, even we're blessed in South Dakota that Wednesday night is sacred. And we, we don't have that type of culture on a Tuesday night, so we make it. So the goal isn't to make you feel guilty, but I'm not going to not say it because I'm afraid you, you're going to feel guilty. I think the church lacks prayer, corporate prayer. I think we need to do it more often. And I think we need to come together and trust God. I love what took place down here. I really didn't have anything to do with it other than showing up a couple times and leading one two-hour prayer segment. That's it. Other people in our community from different churches got together and they made that thing happen. They pulled it off. And it's, it's amazing that there are that many people that would show up between midnight and, heaven help us, between midnight and 6 a.m. to pray. Crazy. I love that there are crazy people in this city because I think God is going to do something amazing. I think he already is. And maybe he's telling me to stop. We'll just assume. So let's stand. Here's what we're going to do. I'm about to pray a prayer over you. And I'm going to pray um, a blessing over your lives. And I recognize that it's 1127 and some of you are maybe going to have to leave. And that's totally okay. We're going to give you the freedom to do that. But I'm going to think some of you want to stay. And I'm going to open the altars. We're going to play some music. You can sing along. You can worship. You can pray. You want to be continuously filled with the Spirit. Our prayer team is going to be here. You want to be prayed for. We'll pray for you. But I would encourage you to take at least a few moments, if you're able, to let the Holy Spirit bring up the greatest point of resistance in your heart right now. In fact, I'm, there's nothing biblical about closing your eyes and bowing your heads, but I'm going to ask you to do it because it helps us to focus. And I'm going to guess that every one of us in this room has an area of our lives where the Holy Spirit has been telling us to do something and we're not, where we've heard the word, but we're not putting it into practice. Let him correct us today. Let him teach us. Let him train us. If you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, come and seek. Take as much time as you can. And so, Father, I thank you again today for your faithfulness. I thank you that you've given us a written account of how you have worked from the day you said, let there be light, until the day you set up your new kingdom, your new heaven, and your new earth. God, all the way from beginning to end, you've seen it all. You're working. You're working to bring about your kingdom on the earth. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that not just today, but over these next weeks, help us to renew our minds. Help us to recall to minds, to take authority over our downcast souls and put our hope in you. Help us to walk out the reality of your kingdom each and every day of our lives. God, to be set apart by your truth. And so God, I pray your blessing over this body today. God, I pray that you would bless them and keep them. I pray that you would cause your face to shine on them, that you lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace. God, I ask that you would be gracious to them. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The altars are open. If you want to spend some time in prayer, if you want to worship with us, if you need to be dismissed, just do it quietly. Let this be a place of prayer for those that want to spend some more time in prayer. God bless you as you go today.
See.